Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm your host, Alex Hull, and in tonight's program, I will be chatting to the filmmaker, John Smith. I'm very excited to welcome my guest to the Art Monthly Talk Show, the legendary John Smith. John is an artist and filmmaker from Walthamstow in London, who has shown his work at international galleries, cinemas, festivals, and across TV. In 2011, he received a Paul Hamlin Foundation Award for Artists, and he was the winner of Film London's Jarman Award in 2013. Having studied at the Royal College of Art in the 70s, he became actively involved with the London Filmmakers Co-op, where he premiered films such as the iconic The Girl Chewing Gum. This is now widely recognised as one of the most important avant-garde films of the 20th century. Grounded in his studying of conceptual art and structuralist film, he looks to the everyday to explore the power of language and how it shapes our reading of images, subverting the relationships between documentary and fiction and representation and abstraction. In this month's issue of Art Monthly, I had the pleasure of reviewing two of John's most recent films, Citadel and COVID Messages, which are crucial records of life in Britain during the COVID-19 pandemic and offer searing takes on the Tory government's utterly incompetent response to the crisis, making clear that their priorities were the health of the economy over the health of the nation. The past year has been undoubtedly devastating and difficult for many people across the country. So, John, my first question to you is what prompted you to make work about this historic moment? And how is the experience of daily life in London suddenly coming to a halt for you, especially as someone who often seeks out ideas in your nearby environment? The first thing that actually prompted me to make anything in relation to uh, COVID was when um, Boris Johnson made his extraordinary request to people to wash their hands while singing Happy Birthday twice, which was such a bizarre thing to me because to begin with, I thought kind of, uh, well, it's not really a very appropriate tune, is it, to be singing when we're sort of trying to stop ourselves from dying. But also, why couldn't you choose something which was like the right length for washing your hands rather than having to sing Happy Birthday twice? So it seems so bizarre to me. It's not a jolly thing to be singing. So um, without thinking of making a film or anything, whenever I wash my hands, I sometimes find myself singing Happy Birthday to the tune of Chopin's Death March. So um, <laughs> happy birthday, happy birthday to you. <laughs> I made this little film called Twice, uh, where um, I actually wash my hands twice, singing the, singing the song in the way in which I just have done. And I, I filmed it with a... Um, and my iPhone strapped to my head uh, in a mirror. So I was very much isolated. I was in lockdown, as we were supposed to be at that time. Well, we, by the time I made the film, we were in lockdown, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was pre-lockdown that we were told that everything would be all right if we just washed our hands and sung. So that was the that, that was a, a little piece that I, I made on my own uh, and put to one side. And eventually that became the first part of the, one of the other uh, recent video pieces you mentioned called COVID Messages. Uh, which ended up being based around Boris Johnson's press conferences. What I should have said about twice that I just mentioned was that you see me doing this bizarre activity and then you see the, the fragment from Johnson's speech where he says, you know, uh, wash your hands, think happy birthday twice. Uh, but at this stage, um, we should just be carrying on with business as usual. Uh, and this was only you know, two or three weeks before things really, 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 really hit. It was clear we were not prepared for what was about to happen. We'd seen what had already happened in Italy. Now, on a completely, from a completely different angle, the other film, Citadel, Citadel is based around the view from my 
bedroom window in my house in Hackney, where I've lived for the past 18 years now. My bedroom is at the, right at the top of a tall house, and uh, and there's a very, very quite a spectacular view over the city of London. So you can see directly out from the window, you can see the Gherkin, more recently, many, many other uh, skyscrapers that have been built in the city. When I first moved into the house, really, the Gherkin had just been completed. I think it was 2003. I became very interested in this view purely for aesthetic reasons. Initially, I, I wanted to film view, and as more and more buildings appeared, more glazed buildings, which the light changed on uh, different times of the day in quite spectacular ways, I became more and more interested in actually filming this, this scene. But I never got round to it for, um, how long is it, 18 years? <laughs> but the reason for that is mainly that I used to make films which were just to do with primarily concerned with aesthetics, primarily concerned with how one can look at the world through film and video and, and reinterpret it and present it in, in, in a different way, taking representational images, but maybe emphasising their more abstract qualities and things like that. And uh, a number of my early films were made in that kind of vein. But um, in more recent years, I've found it very difficult to, especially when you have a scene like the City of London, which represents something which I feel extremely critical of, I felt that I couldn't actually really represent that place uh, without actually presenting some critique of it. And I think that was the thing that held me back for, for, for a very long time from filming. And I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say, uh, but I knew there was going to be an element in the film which actually was a kind of counterpoint to just that the thing of looking, that it was going to, it was going to be, there was going to be some kind of critique involving language in some way or another. I don't know. I didn't know what form that might take, but um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and as time went on, uh, the trees in the gardens between my house and, and the uh, scene of the city grew more and more and more. And but last summer, I thought, I've really got to start making, I've got to make this film now because, I, you know, the trees are going to, going to block out the view before long. So I thought, actually, I've, I've really got to do it. And uh, and also, they were building the, the central building that you see in the film, uh, which has just been completed in Bishopsgate, a building's called 22 Bishopsgate, and that's actually the second highest building in London next to the Shard. That became this very, very dominant sort of iconic monolith in the, in the, in the middle of the frame. So I thought, I've really, got to, I've really got to film it now. And then at the point when Boris Johnson's uh, got sadly elected as Prime Minister last year, that, at that point I thought, okay, I'm going to actually make something which is, you know, has some critique of business because, um, you know, the government seemed to be even more in thrall to business than it was under Theresa May, who had just been kicked out. So I, I thought, okay, I'm going to make something which is, a, which is, which is a critique. And I think I'm going to use, you know, some of Boris Johnson's speeches about business and things like that. And this is before coronavirus. So I, I had everything planned. I started filming before coronavirus was in this country. Sorry, it was already, it was already in Italy. We could see what was going to happen. And I started filming not really knowing what text I was going to use. And then Johnson made this extraordinary speech to business leaders in Greenwich, which the film starts off with, where he says, you know, well, while the rest of the world is worrying about this, you know, getting overly paranoid about this little illness, uh, we can be go out there and make a trillion, uh, make a killing in trade in our 
absolutely free post-Brexit world that we've now entered. Uh, and uh, we can take advantage of this situation while everybody else is worrying unnecessarily about uh, COVID-19. And, uh, and I, I think I had to listen to this speech like twice before I thought, kind of, is this somebody impersonating Boris Johnson? You know, somebody, somebody actually, because it was just unbelievable. So at that point, I knew that with how the film was going to start. And um, and later on, all the other bit texts are made taken from his uh, speeches to uh, from press conferences or interviews on TV. Uh, you know, sort of the high points of his kind of uh, unbelievableness. You know, <laughs> like when he says, oh, "I was in a hospital the other day," and uh, you'll be pleased to know that I shook hands with lots of coronavirus patients and uh, things like that. So I, I've got a sort of greatest hits of little bits, fragments of his speech. But to come back to the other bit of your question that the end was, you know, how is it? How has actually the, the pandemic, COVID-19, affected my work? I would say it had not affected it in any way whatsoever, really, apart from giving one another, giving one a framework to make work about. Because, you know, that film is shot all from the window of my house, so it could be made during lockdown. Um, COVID messages is all made from uh, TV footage of um, press conferences that I just pinched off of the internet. So... Um, it's very much quite similar to the way in which I work normally. I mean, many of my films have been made like looking out the window or in my house. So, I mean, I'm lucky enough to um, to have not been impeded in my work by what was going on. And in a way, quite the opposite. I, you know, I'm quite often don't make a, a lot of work nowadays over the course of a year. And this year, last year, I made two 22-minute film and a 16-minute film, which is quite productive for me nowadays. Um, so it's, it's the opposite. Not that I don't wish it hadn't happened <laughs> and uh, and not that I'm not aware of how awful it has been for most other people. You know, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a house, plenty of space and a garden, you know, which, as we know, many people are not. So Citadel, um, as you mentioned there, it makes this statement, which is the seat of political power lies in the city of London. And yeah, as you mentioned, you used 22 Bishop's Gate, which I think took like years to complete, didn't it? Because it was originally a different building called the Pinnacle. And then it's now 22 Bishop's Gate. And I was actually, I went on their website just to like have a browse and the way they advertise themselves. They have like a members club in their dining facilities, a retreat, spa, studios, a gym with a glass climbing wall. It's like very high-end sort of luxury and they describe themselves as a vertical business campus with an onus on wellness amenity and technology (laughs) (laughs) and I must say as someone who's been working in the arts for a few years now that has never been my experience of office uh, working. I've I've been on the site as well because I was trying to find out why why the lights were switching on and off in such a bizarre way when I was making the film and uh, and I, I was very struck by the fact that they have these enormous, enormous artworks everywhere mm. there inside the space as well. So um, I don't know whether they're kind of imaginary, you know, CGI generated artworks or whether that's what it's actually going to be like that. But it is extraordinary. I think I, I presume it's not. It's, it's still not occupied. I don't know. But um, well, yeah, that's another thing about the pandemic, right? It kind of throws into question what what these kind of buildings signify anymore. Because mm-hmm. I'm presuming most of these, most of the people that were there, are now working from home. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, let's hope there's uh, going to be a lot more artist studios available before too long. You know? <laughs> yeah, we should occupy the building. <laughs> <laughs> 
how alienating that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Citadel, which you said was shot from your bedroom window, opens on a very sort of murky London day, uh, mm. which actually was, you know, my memories of last uh, March, April, it was like unbelievably sunny, which was probably one of the only nice things for people, I guess, who have like a tiny bit of outdoor space. But yeah, it, the the film opens in this very like, it's almost like eerily quiet. And, and that's a very strong memory for me of like the first, I also live in East London, I live in Bethnal Green, so close to the city as well. And that morning after the uh, Boris Johnson announced that first national lockdown, it really struck me how silent the city was without this like hum that you that you don't normally notice, right? This kind of background mm. noise. But yeah, this, the sound editing within the film is like so strong and really contrasts that silence with this kind of grating rain. It'd be great to hear more about your process of editing sound and like what kind of mood or feeling it was trying to evoke. I rarely use the actual sound that was going on at the time when I filmed. So I'm sort of deliberately looking for particular qualities of sound at particular points and uh, as you say, I, I wanted to start the film with this kind of silence or this very kind of still but bleak environment where we're looking at this sort of um, the film starts with a, a, a shot which it, where it's uh, the same exactly the same shot that we see from the rest of the film most of the rest of the film but it's very foggy so you can't actually see the city in the background, all you can see is the domestic housing in the foreground, but it's exactly the same, exactly the same shots. And uh, but it's um, the, the sound at the beginning of the film for me is very is very important, and it's replicated at the end of the film uh, because uh, it's sort of it's intended to represent the reality and the opposite of the sunny vision of post Brexit, post COVID um, Britain that um, Johnson is trying to sell to us it's very very dark and grim and uh, and also importantly at the beginning of the film there is the sound of of builders doing manual labor very near the very near the camera so this is quite intimate sounds of drilling and hammering and things like that which actually was something which was happening on my own house at the time actually <laughs> i was getting a builder to put a bigger doorway in the back onto our back garden and uh, but it was, an, it was a nice coincidence because I wanted to refer to the fact that, you know, that throughout lockdown and building, construction, including what was going on in the city, was still going on throughout. So, and as we know, you know, some people had to go out to work, had to get onto crowded tubes and trains. Other people were able to stay at home. And, the, and I was trying to sort of stress the kind of contrast between the reality of people like Boris Johnson and his ilk or, or those of us who are more uh, lucky, lucky enough not to actually have to be forced to go out and work in dangerous environments and, and the reality of those who didn't have any any choice. So, um, But I found it extraordinary, the whole thing of construction. And he always mentioned in his speeches, you know, those people who have to go to work, people are involved in public services, construction, you know, it's like construction, construction must go on. We must keep building the kind of edifice to mammon, you know, um, that we see, that we, we see, we see in the film. So at the end of the film, it suddenly cuts to glorious springtime. Uh, so everything, uh, while everything else has been shot in the winter, 
all of a sudden all the trees in the, in the, in the shot come into leaf. And it's a beautiful sunny day and it looks, it looks quite idyllic. And Johnson makes this speech about, I know that everything is going to be better by the spring, you know. And after he says that, then I cut back to the same bleak scene that we saw at the end of the film with the sound of the poor builders having to carry on, you know, working in the snow. It's snowing in the last in the last shot. So um, I'm trying to make that make that contrast. It's simplistic. Some of the some of the things I do in the film are quite, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't say everything was about was about business over health or those sorts of things, but um, it's obviously a very, a very big element of what's happened. Mm. You've mentioned it. Citadel documents the City of London's ever-growing skyline, like it's literally being built by construction workers within the film mm. of these sort of glass tower blocks and cranes. And it displays a markedly different view of London, obviously represented in your earlier films. I mean, East London specifically, yeah. um, such as, you know, The Girl Chewing Gum, which I guess now serves as this kind of time capsule of mm. Dalston before it was gentrified. And the stark difference of this is highlighted quite clearly in, in your remake of that film, The Man Phoning Mum. And there's also, you know, Blight that from the 90s that uh, documents or chronicles the, the demolition of homes in East London. And I also imagine that Citadel, similarly, is going to become this kind of record of time. Is this documentation of a changing East London and its um, architectural history a conscious desire you have when you're making a work or do you think that it's an inevitable factor when working in a documentary mode? It's the second. When I'm making work, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the present. And, uh, but I'm more and more aware, of course, as time goes by, that the reading of the work becomes entirely different over time. And uh, especially because I tend to show, as well as recent new work, I show old work a lot as well. So, uh, and I quite often do presentations where I will show a whole program of my own work, which might go back to you know 45 years now and uh, so there in, inevitably one sees this kind of history and things things changing over time i mean when i made the girl chewing gum uh, i was wanting to choose the most ordinary mundane scene that i could um there was a reason to, for choosing the location because i wanted to have a cinema in the shop and i wanted to have a clock in the shop because I wanted to direct the speed that the hands on the clock moved at. Uh, but uh, uh, so that's why I ended up in that location. But it was very deliberately, very, very, a very, very ordinary uh, environment. And of course, now when we look at it, especially with what's happened with the East End of London in terms of gentrification, we look at it now, it's completely exotic. And uh, and it's quite, quite hard to believe that, um, I, don't, I don't know that it's funny to say only 45 years. 45 years ago <laughs> uh, but in terms of human history it's not not that long ago and uh, I would have thought you know it was a, it, it, it was longer I mean it's really interesting to see how poor most people look and the demographic of you know uh, people from um, different ethnic groups completely different I mean it's almost everybody is white you know in 1976 which is a Shock! It didn't feel like that at the time, you know. That's because um, I lived in Hackney at the time as well. So it was at the end of my street that I made the film. That's very often is the case. 
but now it's um it looks like a kind of costume drama in a way it looks like people are kind of characters you know and they really uh, unless of course as they treat them as characters in the film it's quite interesting they become <laughs> become the person that uh, that i that, that i described i've had some very interesting things with that film with because uh, it gets shown a lot in an educational context, quite often in schools in relation to documentary. Occasionally when I've been sort of ego searching for myself online, I've found these blogs that school kids have written about the film. And uh, and sometimes people have... Uh, one, my, one of my favourites was somebody wrote, oh, it was made before colour film was invented. <laughs> and another one, the film's only two shots. Another one said it was made before they they learned how to edit, and uh, <laughs> uh, which you know makes us really laugh for, for like seventeen, eighteen year old person to say that. But I guess you know that um, you know forty five years ago to them uh, could is is it might as well be the beginning of c- cinema with the Lumia Brothers in eighteen ninety five. You know, and it's like it is strange to think that film was made. You know getting on for half as long as the whole history of cinema ago. <laughs> it makes one feel makes one feel very old. <laughs> I, 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 I realised myself a few years ago that I was more than half as old as cinema. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but the, 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 I, I, I'm more and more interested in how things become um, historical documents. And I think... Mm. Um, you know, I think Girl Chewing Gum is, you know, might be, in, if you turn the sound off, it's it could be like one of those um, films by, by, you know, Mitchell and Kenyon who made early films in the beginning of the 20th century that were discovered not so long ago. Mm. Very, very long shots of people in the street. And there's a, a lot of kind of um, anthropological stuff, which I think one might deduce from from looking at the work, which one doesn't think of at the time at all. So the neighbouring houses that you peer into in your camera in Citadel encapsulate a very certain image of life in lockdown. You touched upon this earlier, talking about the kind of contrast in people's experience, right? Some people had to go out to work. Some people were stuck stuck inside. I was particularly struck by the scene of a girl sort of doing an at-home workout as someone who has also done a fair share of exercise in my living room I would personally be horrified to have that (laughs) captured on film however I might be willing to accept a trade-in if I was immortalized in a John Smith film but yeah obviously the girl chewing gum as well is kind of is so famous and so many billions of people have watched it so I guess I kind of wanted to ask if has anyone ever approached you after recognizing themselves in any of your films no, they haven't, and I, I kind of all, I almost wish that they wish that they would. But I think things have, you know, obviously there's an ethical question here, and you've mm. sort of touched on it in relation to me filming the woman taking exercise. I mean, in um, in in Citadel, I made a rule for myself that you wouldn't see anybody's face, for example, and everybody is kind of quite small, so they're not kind of uh, featured in the film at all. They kind of they're more ciphers really than they are individuals or I, th- or I think they do kind of give a kind of uh sense of a lifestyle i mean it's it was quite it was sort of slightly disappointing to me that the the houses that were closest to me were generally probably owned mainly by sort of affluent quite affluent owner occupiers who maybe um or at least who didn't probably didn't have to go out to work during lockdown i don't know if you saw it on a 
how big a screen you saw it on, but actually there are lots and lots of shots where you do see people in the windows of tower blocks who are much have a much more kind of Edward Hopper, you know, sort of lonely existence there, people making cups of tea and mm. boiling a kettle in front of the window or doing a washing up and things like that, uh, which was important to me, but um, I couldn't make them as big as the, <laughs> big as the middle-class people. <laughs> they always have to dominate, don't they? Um, <laughs> I, it's interesting because when I made Girls Chewing Gum, it's very interesting when I look at Girls Chewing Gum now, it's really interesting how everybody, no, the only people who acknowledge the camera are children. And then, you know, sometimes one of them does a V-sign the camera and then one of them sort of waves his arms up and down. But everybody else, if they notice the camera, they look the other way. And uh, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And I, I think it's to do with the fact that, um, you know, even though I was a long-haired art student at the time, I had this great big giant professional camera on a you know on a big tripod in the street and I think people kind of there was a respect for authority which meant you know kind of okay those people are they're going about their business they're doing you know you know we mustn't you know mess up their filming or whatever you know so uh, but curiously when I remade it when I made the man phoning mum in 2011 35 years later I had an entirely different experience uh uh, with one or two people who were quite hostile, and one was very, very hostile. The camera was shot from exactly the same camera position, and I tried to replicate the camera movements of the original film, and I superimposed the two things on top of each other. It, I wasn't actually filming at the time, but I was doing a run-through, practicing what I was going to do. And at certain point, some a man kind of walked in front of the camera while I, had my, while I was looking through the viewfinder, he walked in front of the camera, walked through the scene, and then came back immediately and kind of came up to me very aggressively and said, are you fucking filming me? And uh, I said, no, no, I wasn't actually. No, no, no. And um, <laughs> I realised that sort of he probably just did it deliberately, thinking you know, maybe, he could get, maybe he could get a fee <laughs> out of it um, because, uh, because he was going to be on film. But um, anyway, I think, you know, there's obviously there's much more, and, you know, understandably much more hostility to being to being filmed now, I've always hoped that when I made Man Finding Mum, I hoped that maybe there would be somebody who was in the original, original film who still walked, lived in the same area who would pass the you know younger self <laughs> in the superimposition. And uh, no, I, I haven't. I haven't personally met anybody who's been in the film, any of the films. But I had a funny experience with a, a film called Worst Case Scenario that I made in Vienna. And uh, around, well, finished it in 2003, shot it in 2001. Uh, and that film um, is, is uh, it's a deb- deliberately uncomfortable, kind of rather voyeuristic um, observation of people in the street in quite big close-up where I animate still photographs to give people this kind of manic, kind of compulsive uh, behavior it sort of loosely relates to freud and theories about compulsion and, and and phobia and things like that but um but there's one bit in the film where i took a, where i i um filmed two young people snogging kissing uh very passionately uh and i looped it so that you know this kiss goes on forever and ever and ever and i cut it so as if other people are watching them kissing and i showed the film in vienna after that, I, I wasn't there, but it, the film was shown there. And um, the people who screened the film said after the screening, someone came up to them and said, 
that man who's kissing <laughs> that girl in the film, he's my best friend's boyfriend, and she's not. <laughs> she's the girl he's kissing. He's not her. <laughs> so I, I, I often wonder if, if that information ever got through to the, to the relevant participants. <laughs> That's amazing. So someone was recognised then from the yeah, film, yeah. even if yeah. it's just sort of by proxy. Yeah. I mean, it must have happened. I mean, I, I, I because Citadel was screened on Mubi, uh, which you know thousands and thousands of people watched, probably quite a lot of people in Hackney. I was kind of slightly thinking, you know, is some is one of those people in the houses near me going to? Is, is the woman doing her exercise going to come and knock on the door and have a go at me for, um, for, for, for filming her? <laughs> so we talked a lot about Citadel there. It'd be great now to talk a bit about COVID messages, which we've, mm. which we've mentioned, uh, also came out in 2020 and, yeah, focuses on the rituals of the government's COVID press conferences, which you very interestingly described as all very Brechtian and I know that Brecht's uh, alienation or distancing effect has had a lasting sort of impact on your work. <laughs> so could you maybe talk a bit about that, why you found them to be very Brechtian and just a bit more about why Brecht's sort of ideas have stuck with you for so long? It, well, it was the kind of the sense that the scene was um, the kind of artifice of the whole scene. It was like, it's difficult to kind of immerse yourself in it as if it was reality. <laughs> I always felt kind of completely distanced from this weird set where they had these sort of strange, you know, shoddy-looking podiums with fake wood panelling on them and then these bits of cardboard which with, with the various slogans that they decided to adopt over the period of, of, of months. But... Um, I guess Brecht was important to me in the beginning. Something that sort of was very much in uh, his ideas were very much discussed when I was a student at the Royal College. And the crossover between ideas from Brecht and ideas about structural film, which were, you know, basically ideas about exposing the mechanism of what you're looking at uh, and enabling the viewer to actually actively engage in what you're looking at during the moment of, 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 of the time of viewing uh, rather than passively consuming it. So I think that was something which were ideas which kind of crossed over between Brechtian ideas in relation to theatre and, and distanciation where we're not supposed to you know, identify and uh, certainly not to shed a tear while we're watching things and ideas around materialist filmmaking at that time and those ideas just really really stuck with me I think you know possibly because of a very formative time in my life and I, I've always thought that you know sort of I've uh, always wondered you know if I'd grown up at a different time you know why there were probably other tenets which were, which would remain kind of very important to me over over time you know I mean I can't imagine what it would have been like to you know, if it was like 10 years later, I'd gone to college and everybody was like new romantics or something. <laughs> it's like the absolute kind of antithesis. Uh, but maybe, you know, I would have had an entirely different uh, trajectory in, in my work and my ideas and my politics, all of those things, you know. Yeah, well, there's something very significant, I guess, about those press conferences as well, because they were just tedious, everyday 
same sort of thing, you know, as you said, these kind of ridiculous signs like control the virus, whatever that's meant to mean. And it was so easy to just like passively consume it. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't even bear to watch them after mm. sort of six or seven weeks. They just drove me mad. Uh, just... well, I, I'm sure I must have missed some great material because I was the same as you. You know, I couldn't, I found them unbearable to watch, but I kind of like forced myself to, you know, drag myself through until I got some kind of nugget that I could work with. And um, and because of the kind of absurdity of, 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 of the singing Happy Birthday twice, while washing your hands, I mean that was that was the trigger really to make the whole series of COVID messages based around the idea of like magical spells. So I looked at you know this doing this washing hands and, and and singing as being some way of kind of some kind of exorcism or you know that you could look at it in a kind of some kind of supernatural way. Um, so when um, occasionally Boris Johnson sort of started speaking in tongues in the middle of his speeches uh, and started making these Freudian slips, I got more and more fascinated in how one could like take fragments of things and turn them in different ways. I mean, I, I just found it amazing when he was talking about test, test, um, test and tra- contact, contact tracing, and he accidentally saying contract tasting <laughs> it was exactly the same time when we knew that you know ppa ppe contracts were being handed out to him and hancock's mates you know so, so it really felt like a kind of like freudian, freudian slip and um and then of course once i was onto the kind of idea of the supernatural it was great that the kind of really big press conference that came out in relation to the later lockdown happened on halloween and uh, <laughs> and the Brechtian thing, of course, with that, with the YouTube footage of that, is that it, uh, unfortunately, sadly, it's been shortened now. But for several months, it was up there. You had fifteen minutes before the conference starts of the film crew and the press officers going around arranging papers, testing microphones, and things like that, and uh, which I incorporated uh, bits from into the film. I really like that you um, edited it so that Boris Johnson repeated himself saying, I'm truly sorry. Uh, <laughs> over and it's wishful thinking. You know? <laughs> I just want him to say, I'm truly, truly sorry. <laughs> Humour is obviously a very prominent part of your work and, you know, especially in COVID messages. But also you kind of juxtapose it quite nicely with this sort of horror element, right? Especially got that in the Black Tower yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what what sort of comedy do you like, and why did it become important for you to include it within um, your filmmaking? Well, I'm happy that the films, you know, very often have a kind of humorous aspect to them. But I'm, I, I, I never sort of set out to make a funny film. One of the things I'm very interested in my work, which is probably clear from looking at all different kinds of things, is that I'm really interested in ambiguity and how we can look at the world in very, very different ways and how specifically with film and video as a medium, one can actually subvert meaning and and by juxtaposing sounds and images against each other or editing in a particular way, uh, we can um, create all different kinds of, of new meanings for things. And, of course, when we're looking at something, uh, kind of documentary material, we know what it really is, but we're being told it's something else, but it's only too easy because of the power of language to imagine 
that that alternative and absurd reality is kind of something which one can yeah, imagine being a reality, although we know it's not. Uh, that's generally something that we find funny. Humour comes about in the work in, in that respect. I mean, that being said, I'm, I'm very, very happy that um, the work does involve that element of humour, partly because uh, hopefully it makes the work more accessible. And, you know, I'm interested in making work which is as accessible to as many people as possible, you know. But the, the other thing is I think that uh, in relation to presenting serious ideas, I think if one can combine, and as you, you were talking about the Black Tower, but I think we're doing quite a few films, um, the, if one can combine humour and, and horror, <laughs> uh, and I'm more interested in the horror of the real world, the documentary aspect of, say, for example, for example um, my video diaries, hotel diaries series, which is all about the conflicts in Middle East and Afghanistan, but has some, uh, a lot of jokes in as well, kind of juxtaposed against, you know, descriptions of horror. Uh, I think the horror becomes more effective. You know, I think one starts looking at something in one way and then you present something in a very, very different way. It can be uh, quite dramatic. So um, it's quite a manipulative thing, but I'm not that adverse to manipulation, <laughs> to say. So um, yeah, no, that's a that's a, an important thing. Do you watch a lot of horror out of interest, or is uh, mm-hmm. is reality mm-hmm. enough? <laughs> no, I'm not, and I'm not interested in horror films. In fact, I hate horror films generally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the other day because I've been watching um, since they showed my film on movie. I thought I'll subscribe to it. So I've watched quite a few things on movie, and some things I think, oh god, I cannot. This is just so sick. You know, I don't want to watch people being disemboweled. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to slag off movie because they actually show some really good stuff as well. But, uh, but I've seen stuff that I, I can't bear. But um, but a film like The Black Tower, you know, it's interesting you describe it in some ways as a horror film because I was never thinking of that when I made the film at all. It, in a way, it was a follow-up from The Girl Chewing Gum where I wanted to experiment with how much one can use the power of language to actually... Turn um, you know mundane images of everyday life into something uh, which is much more exotic in some way. And the Black Tower I kind of made as a kind of I wanted to make it as a kind of pastiche of a kind of horror stroke mystery story. So it was so it was like a familiar form, uh, but I didn't expect uh, until after I started showing it and people started watching it that anybody would actually take the kind of now would would immerse themselves in the narrative aspect of it as much as they as much as they do. It would be hard to actually talk much more about that without going on for ages because that was a different, complicated, different counterpoints in the film. But, uh, but but one of them is this sense of the idea of the film is it is that it shifts. Talking about putting contrasting different elements together is that that's probably the most extreme film I've made in terms of combining different elements because at one end you've got quite a conventional linear narrative emotive immersive story uh, and on the other you've got you know aspects of the film which although they can be seen in the context of that are completely abstract uh juxtapositions of you know flat color fields and 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 sounds which are working in abstract ways so the idea is that the, the film works 
backwards and forwards between those kinds of uh, those kinds of elements. Mm. Disorientate. I mean, disorientation. Coming back to the use of humour again, so disorientation is an important part for me of the work. That you, I want people not to be quite sure what they're looking at. You often use the voiceover as a narrative device within your film. Um, you know, obviously in The Girl Chewing Gum, The Black Tower, um, Hotel Diaries, um, which kind of directly situates you within your work. However, of course, in Citadel, it's Boris's voice. He's the voiceover. He becomes the narrator. And the voiceover, I guess, is a, it's especially in traditional documentary film. It plays quite an authoritarian role as a kind of this truth teller. But I know that your work is very anti-authoritarian. So why is it important for you to use it and then subvert it? And, and, and what are you thinking about when you're sort of doing that? Um, well, you sort of answered the question for me in a way because, you know, like the, um, I mean, the girl chewing, the, the, the main ambition of the girl chewing gum was to make a critique of the dangers of voiceover in conventional documentary uh, because of what we were talking about. In the, in the girl chewing gum, one of the things that I was sort of very pleased with but slightly surprised about when I'm, when I started putting the, voiceover onto the images later was how well it worked and, and and in a sense how convincing the descriptions of what we're looking at are and um, as I was saying in relation to humor you know there's a there's a kind of humor that arrives because we, arises because we can so easily imagine that an absurd scenario that's being described could be actual I made the film around the time of the um I, I sometimes get the dates wrong here. I'm not. I, I hope I did make it around then. It might have been earlier, <laughs> uh, but I don't know if you know about the sus laws that used to operate um, in this country. They're based on the Vagrancy Act of the in the in Victorian times, which were kind of uh, resuscitated in the 70s and 80s. I think most notoriously after I made the film by Thatcher's government, uh, where basically uh, it gave the police. And it's a very current idea now, of course, as well. Gave the police the power to stop and search people because they felt they were behaving suspiciously. Uh, so my idea with the Godchewing Gum was to actually make people appear as though they were uh, behaving suspiciously. So at the end of the film, I very directly do that by saying that somebody's just robbed the local post office and he's got a gun in his pocket and... Uh, but I, you know, it's it's funny. But I was making a very very serious point uh, to do with the fact that um, you know, then as now, for the uh, police force or many members of the police force, I won't include all of them, you know, but uh, just the colour of your skin can be something that makes you suspicious. So and and it's frightening that things haven't changed so much since that time, actually, in terms of. Um, how many people you see being stopped in the street by police and what percentage of them happen to be black. It's always meant to be a critique. It always has to be suspicious. I, I don't want people to actually believe it. I mean, even the, the Hotel Diaries videos, which are entirely factual, there's nothing, but I deliberately present them in the way, just the way in which I nuance the language and things. I deliberately try and make things seem improbable because I think it's really important you know, coming back to ideas around breath and things that you don't passively consume stuff that you're told. But it's getting the balance right because one wants to say, you know, 
I'm trying to say something serious here. This is sincere, but don't doesn't don't necessarily believe everything that I'm telling you, and uh, don't empathise too much. So I um I read in your artist statement in the Artist Moving Image in Britain since 1989, and you described yourself as a cottage industry filmmaker with a hands-on approach to all aspects of production. Mm. Um, and you state that your work has always been shaped by um, emerging and available technologies of the time. Mm. So yeah, how has technology, because obviously you were working in 16 millimeter for 20 years or so, and then and then shift to video. It's changed imm- immensely because, um, you know, I mean, what's when I say, what I mean by that is that I, want to do everything myself and I want to do it at home and I don't, and, and unless I have to get someone else to help me with anything I, I'll do I will, I will I will do it on my own and uh, partly because I work so slowly and uh, feel embarrassed about keeping other people hanging around if they're working with me so the work is so much led by technology over the years and uh, you know when I first started out many of the films were kind of like in a way based around the possibilities of a Bolex 16mm film camera where you had certain things you could do with it, like you could rewind the film in the camera and superimpose one image on top of another. You could film also single frames, so you could animate as well as doing live action, or you could alternate live action and animation in camera. You could do a, a, a fade within the camera and things like that. So those were the um, things like that, technical possibilities like that, were actually elements which actually shaped the work, especially in you know, when I was first making work, which was much more concerned with purely formal and aesthetic concerns. Uh, you could see that the work, like a lot of other people's work, you could see it was shot on a Bolex camera. You could see when, if the film was uh, edited in the camera, very often the first frame of a shot would be slightly overexposed because the camera takes a fraction of a second to get up to speed and things like that. Anyway, I became really, really familiar with that particular camera, knew everything inside out with it, and uh, also used Arriflex cameras for sync sound work, but I didn't often do sync sound work, so usually film silently with a Bolex and record sound separately. But then around the um, – so all of my work was always something which was made over quite long periods of time, um, you know, gathering a bit of material, then getting it processed, looking at it, getting ideas from that to, to gather some more, edit some more. But then around the kind of early 90s, quite cheap amateur video cameras, that, which, which had reasonably good – at that time, reasonably good quality – Start to become available, and uh, and I got very interested in the possibility of doing something which was entirely different from anything I'd done before. I'd never made work on video, which was to make work which was much more spontaneous and immediate. And I thought, actually, with these little camcorders, I can actually just film and speak at the same time, and uh, and rather than actually, you know, spending lots of time doing things which are very very contemplated actually do make some work which is more and more more spontaneous so i made a a video called home suite in 93 94 which is um my longest feature length films and 96 minutes cost about 15 quid and for three um videotapes i always like this because sometimes people 
you go to a film festival and uh, quite often as a kind of older person at a film festival, I might meet young filmmakers who are aspiring to make feature films, you know, and they sort of say, oh, you don't mind me saying this, you know, but um, but have you ever thought, you know, you're still making short films and you're in your uh, 50s, 60s and, um, you know, have you not thought about making feature films? And uh, I always like to say, yeah, I did. I made a feature film back in 1996. <laughs> and uh, it was low budget, though, only cost 15 quid. <laughs> but I've shown it quite a lot. It's quite popular. <clears throat> and Hotel Diaries, of course, are the same. So absolute no, no, budget, um, no budget film. So that, that was a big shift for me. That I started making work, this kind of more spontaneous kind of work, which I've made several pieces in that sort of vein. And then HD video came along, and that was a that was a liberating thing for me because I've always been obsessed by detail in the image, and uh, you know, and sharpness and things like that. And actually, uh, HD video with a decent lens is you know you can is much much you see a fair bit more than you could on sixteen mil. So at that point, I realised that it's the my work started changing in terms of partly how I composed images. Because up until when I was working on film, nearly all my images were very often quite tight close-ups and things. Because the tighter you frame something, the sharper it looks. You know. And when I got my first HD camera, I made a film called Flag Mountain in Nicosia in Cyprus. And the first shot of the film is this panoramic wide shot of the whole of Nicosia, which I would never have done. Made that shot on 16 millimeter film. Also. Um, I've got used to it now, but I really didn't like it to begin with, that when all of a sudden the aspect ratio of the frame, the standard aspect ratio of the frame, changed from being 4 by 3 which was what 16mm film was, apart from Super 16, uh, to 16 by 9 ratio. So now the norm is to work with these very wide images. And to begin with, I thought, well, what am I going to do with those what I do with those bits on the side of the frame, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm so used to composing within a four by three rectangle. And now I've got this 69 frame. What, well, yeah, what am I going to do with it? And um, I got quite, I, as a film I've never made, I was intended to do, to make, which is about the changeover from on TV for, to widescreen TV. So of course, widescreen TVs were introduced primarily to make money for the TV manufacturers. Cause I don't know. If you know this, but you know when widescreen TV first, widescreen TVs were first available to buy, very little stuff was actually broadcast widescreen. But people would actually turn their TV to stretch it, so that everybody became much fatter. <laughs> and uh, I won't go into details, but I, I had a whole thesis around you know why people were getting. My obesity was becoming more of a problem uh, because it because the uh, widescreen TV was normalising a fuller figure. Uh, but yeah, and the, the video is going to be called Love Handles. <laughs> what do you do with the bits on the side of the frame? And uh, I still might make it. <laughs> I would love to see that film. You definitely should make it. <laughs> <laughs> You've screened your films in so many different settings from, you know, cinemas to exhibitions, movie, a massive streaming platform, on TV. How how was that experience of actually having your films broadcast on TV and in, in, in obviously quite a, a formative stage of your career as well? Mm-hmm. 
extremely disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it, there's nothing for me that you know can beat actually being having a live audience and actually you know seeing people's reactions. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the nice things about having humour in films is that you know if people are appreciating the films because you're going you're, you're getting an audible response while the film's showing. Um, but um, the first film that I had shown on TV was very early on uh, when I was first at the Royal College in 1975. And there was a, a program, a series for BBC Two, kind of late night, Saturday night series, uh, called The First Picture Show. And it was student films. And they showed student films for the first time on television. And they showed my film Associations, which they insisted on cutting the beginning off of because it had a minute and a half of black on. And they said, that if we show it with a minute and a half of black, the transmitters automatically shut down or something. But... Uh, I think they were lying. They just, <laughs> uh, but anyway, they showed this film, and I went to a party that night somewhere, <laughs> and I thought I don't need to see my film. I've seen my film on TV. I don't need to see it, you know. And I was at this party, and the party was like somebody I didn't know's house, although I had friends that were there as well. And it got to like five to eleven, or whenever this program was going to show, and I thought I've got to see it. I've got to see it. <laughs> so I ended up. You know, harassing the people who are who are having the party to kind of pull out their little tiny black and white television, try and <laughs> tune in the the uh, you know set top aerial and try and watch this watch this film. But um, but um, that was the first time, and I thought, oh, well, okay, it went out. But um, <laughs> but later on, whenever I saw whenever something was um, broadcast on TV, it was always an anticlimax. I always thought that I was always trying to subvert things. So the second time I had something shown on TV was, uh, which would seem extraordinary now because it was shown at six o'clock in the evening on Thames TV, which is the equivalent of ITV One uh, in London now, and it was a half-hour anti-documentary I made, uh, which was a critique of a documentary called Hackney Marshes, based around people living in tower blocks in Hackney. It was without going into details. It was very subversive in terms of mainstream tv there were weird things going on with kind of visual effects with cutting you know cut against kind of quite in- conventional interviews but i get people saying one thing and then saying the opposite thing that because i was choosing contradictory things people said from interviews so the film was kind of was about really i wanted the film to be about how one could if one has a an ambition for a film as a director in a documentary, you can make it say whatever you want, depending on what you select from the material. Uh, so I was trying to sort of make, again, make the material suspect. Uh, and I thought, oh, it's got to be, you know, it's on at six o'clock in the evening, uh, you know, millions of people. At that time, I don't know how many people, it would have been five million people watched it, you know, probably. I thought, I'm going to get some responses to this. And hopefully, you know, that it'll stir things up a bit. I got one response to the film. And it was a letter written with a shaky hand by somebody. It was saying, oh, dear sirs, I hope you don't mind us contacting you, but we're, we're old age pensioners and we've, we've had a bit of bother recently and we live in a, and we live in a tower block. Uh, and in, in New Film Hackney Marshes, we were taken into a tall building Talking about Brecht and I did, and they say we were taken in, you know, we went in, and this film was all about kind of this is material, this is material. 
we were taken into this tall building and a lady in one of the flats showed us the alarm lock on one, on her front door. Uh, we've tried in all the shops to get one, but we can't find one anywhere. I wonder if you could tell us where we might buy it. <laughs> 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 that was my one, uh, I've still got it. I've got to publish the letter sometime. Yeah, that's amazing. Those people must be, well, you know, dead years ago, so I don't think it, I don't have to print the name anyway. But uh, but it's nice. It's the way in which it's written as well. I mean, it's very moving, you know. It's like, unfortunately, I couldn't find out, find out where the lot was where she got the lot, but <laughs> so I, I, I did write to them and apologise. But then later, interestingly, the Black Tower was shown on television. That is the only film of mine that's really got elicited a response, and the responses are all complaints because why is there no image on my screen? So people were phoning in and saying, you know, "What's going on? What's going on? I can't. You know, I'm not getting my <laughs> not getting my two feathers worth of." you know image and sound there's you know there's only a funny sound and the screen's all red or you know and there, there's a whole i can't remember how many people phoned in but quite a lot for the time when you had to actually phone you know their, mm. and, and they, they record that what they call the duty log at that time so i've got a transcription of all of the all of those voices which are quite interesting in themselves because the uh the person, they, they obviously trying to give clues as to whether you should take someone seriously or not, you know. So uh, my favourite one was um, slurred voice Glaswegian accent. <laughs> said this. <laughs> so that's not value judgment, what is, you know. But, <laughs> um, anyway, and uh, people, people say things, I don't pay my licence fee for this, you know. I said, well, no, you don't. You pay your licence fee for BBC, not Channel 4. <laughs> but... Um, Anyway, so I was very happy with that. But funnily enough, the producer of, uh, of, of Channel 4 at the time said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, you know, you've got these responses, John. I thought, I'm really pleased that I've got these responses because, you know, there's like 20 people phoned in. That means that there are probably, you know, there must be mm. a couple of thousand who've been, you know, disorientated mm. and kind of, you know, slight, slightly bemused by, by this film. Not that I want to alienate people, let's say, you know, but, but to actually to, to, you know, to make people wonder about what mm. they're looking at, um, I think is, a, is an important thing. That's amazing. I think that's all we have time for today, John. Thank you yeah. so much for <laughs> chatting with me. It was a great discussion. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. It's great. That's it for tonight's Art Monthly talk show. If you're interested in checking out the June issue of the magazine, which includes my review of John's films alongside some excellent features and reviews, then do grab yourself a copy from our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. Thanks again to my fabulous guest, John Smith, and thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next month.